Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Sudhir Chawa, who is a professor of finance at Sheller College of Business at George Institute of Technology and leads the Financial Services Innovation Lab there. Sudhir's research interests are in credit risk, banking, fintech, household finance, empirical asset pricing, and corporate finance. Welcome, Sudhir. Uh, Thank you, Gil. I'm very happy to be on your call. Yeah, thanks for spending the time. I want to start with one of your uh, papers, uh, uh, Investor Response to Extreme Language in Earnings Conference Calls, uh, in which you say um, you, you developed a dictionary of linguistic extremity in earnings conference calls, and, uh, and setting where managers have considerable latitude in the language they use in, in the earnings call as well as in uh, financial reports, uh, to study the role of extreme language in corporate reporting, um, you say controlling for tone, positive or negative of language, you document that when managers use more extreme words in earnings conference calls, trading volume around the call increases and stock prices react more strongly. Uh, it makes intuitive sense to their um, but it's also sort of puzzling <laughs> in some <laughs> ways. So you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, happy to. Uh, first, uh, this paper is co-authored uh, with uh, my colleagues, uh, Krishna Bochke. She's at uh, University of Miami and uh, Jeffrey Hales, who's yeah. at Georgia Tech and now at University of Texas, Austin. And uh, this uh, project started for us thinking about uh, language in a way, in terms of when uh, we think about um, the SEC documents, when firms file their uh, text documents with SEC in an Edgar, whether they're 10Ks or 8Ks, yeah. Sometimes they're boilerplate because they go through many iterations and uh, what they can actually mention those are a bit limited because it's a legal review happens right. and they are much more deliberate on that. In contrast, uh, when we look at earnings conference calls where uh, the senior management is talking to analysts, they're a bit more uh, unscripted. 
Mm. Because there is a question and answer session, and some of the information might come in, which I think uh, is comes it out of the interaction. So that's what we wanted to look at first. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. You know, um, it, uh, there was some explanation why stocks react to you know um, uh, reports, uh, financial reports, or even earnings calls in a regime of you know sort of um, efficient markets. that information should be already in prices uh, but one explanation is sort of the signaling effect uh, in there right so if if the company misses uh, given that the company has a lot of accounting flexibility um, i guess investors are saying they could have made the number but they chose not to uh, perhaps they're trying to tell us something <laughs> and uh, th- there is also a signaling effect here in terms of language use Yes, uh, if, when you think about it, like uh, as I said, this is a bit unscripted. So somebody might say, like the firm has controlling for the same kind of uh, quantitative information. Let's say the earnings per share or profitability of the firm. A manager might say, like they had a good performance, mm. or somebody might say they have spectacular performance. <laughs> right. So the idea is again to see if there's a difference between if there's any kind of information that comes out. This is any signaling based on whether they said this is spectacular performance. performance versus whether it's a good performance that is the two firms might have the same $1 in eps mm-hmm. or they might have the same type of profitability mm-hmm. all the controlling for the quantity information as best as we can is there more information in the language and that's what we find in a way yeah. that is basically this is a predictive of the future so one can argue that why this information not priced Uh, immediately or why would there be like uh, market price this one as you said there's a signaling thing mm. but as more and more firms maybe like uh, incorporate this kind of um, textual analysis are i think in terms of parsing the voice and uh, the tone of the managers what language they use probably in the future the market will be more efficient and yeah. again this will get incorporated much more quickly Yeah. So, uh, did you do any sort of longitudinal studies? Uh, uh, so, so obviously, language is uh, person dependent. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, some people tend to use extreme language uh, for everything, and some people are less so. And so, probably have, Tesla is an example. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, have you have you looked at you know, so like one CFO over time, uh, how he or she um, approached it, and how the markets might have reacted? So in this case, in this particular case, we haven't. But it's a very good point, and I think it is positive. Definitely, there will be styles. I yeah. think other research has looked at it, and there would be styles where the CEOs or CFOs might have style, and that's how they talk about it. Right. So that definitely is a possibility. So in this case, what we wanted to do was first, I think, because we had to pull in a large number of earnings conference calls and then parse them, and then we had to actually develop a dictionary. What is extreme? So we went to Mechanical Turk based on all these words. Then we had a number of uh, users yes. score them, and then based on that, we were able to classify them from a minus five to plus five of extreme. So our part of our contribution is coming out of this dictionary yeah. of extreme words. which is a, a bit different from just positive and negative yeah yeah this one i think is uh, controlling both might be positive as i said earnings might be good great or spectacular mm. right so i think and uh, i think that's the contribution so we haven't controlled for like uh, the style of the manager per se yeah 
Yeah. But definitely, I think for the firm, if as long as the firm, the manager hasn't changed, we have control for some of the firm specific things or time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so the firm specific things, meaning uh, industry size and things like that. Yes, a large number of control variables which have to do with the quantitative information that comes out along with the earnings. Because one of the concerns might be, uh, is the market reacting to the information which is there, the extreme language? Yeah. Are the market coming uh, reacting to some quantitative information which is there? Right. So we want to control for number of earnings related measures hmm. which come out around this time. And also like uh, the firm related characteristics and also the industry characteristics. Yeah, that yeah. after controlling for all of them, yeah. we look at uh, whether uh, this extreme language has an impact. And then we also do a lot of cross-sectional analysis. Again, as you expected, some of what you mentioned before, yeah. if yeah. the firm has, um, again, it's a large firm, or if the firm has um, a large number of analysts, mm-hmm. I think you can think about how they might have a different uh, role to play. So yeah. if the firm has a weaker information environment where uh, there's not as many analysts following the company, yeah. So there might be more information coming out right. through the call. So that's what we find. Yeah, so it's really interesting. Um, there is also sort of uh, perhaps in the future, uh, you might be looking at like style and uh, how many people spoke at the conference calls, maybe the sequencing of those calls and all of that, the, the whole choreography that a company goes through. Yeah, I think we have done, that's a very good point. I think yeah. we have done some of it, but I think some of it has been done by other researchers. Yeah. That's why we haven't uh, explored that angle as much. But we did break it down into whether it's done at the level of introduction, whether it's part of Q&A. Yeah. And because we can break it up into like whether there's a question and answer session, uh, we can basically say who asked the question and I think what was the answer. And then we can look at uh, those parts of it. You're right. There's a lot of work uh, to be done. And in fact, actually, like uh, with uh, my PhD student, um, I'm actually working on a couple of other projects on this one related to this one. And one of them is actually about uh, looking at uh, the earnings conference calls, but also looking at uh, sustainability related measures of that. Mm. So there might be a lot of talk about uh, environmentally social governance related futures. And uh, it's uh, right now in vogue. And many people would be talking about they are actually implementing a number of um, uh, number of improvements or number of initiatives around uh, these issues: ESG, versus impact investing, environmental issues, social issues, governance right. issues. Right. So what we wanted to do was um, look at these and uh, over a period of time and see like uh, whether uh, these have gone up in the earnings conference calls. Mm. By the way, it's a work in progress, so I'm still, we are still working on it. But since you mentioned it, I thought it'd be interesting to look at it. Yeah. But also like uh, the second part, which we are working on is to see, is it just the talk or the walk in the walk? <laughs> right. yeah. That uh, are they really implementing these policies? I don't yeah. have the answers yet for that. We're still working on it. But they say there are many interesting things to be done. Right. This is uh, still um, relatively new, data because of the improvements in text voice we can actually look at these so i'm uh, pretty interested in it and uh, we are going to work on a number of other projects yeah yeah very interesting i want to jump into another paper um entitled does history repeat itself uh business cycle and industry returns in which you say industries with higher historical business cycle regime sharp ratios rsr have higher regime dependent expected returns 
and condition on whether output gap is positive or negative and out of sample long long high rsr and short low rsr sector rotation strategy generates about 14% annualized alpha in the pharma french five factor model during 85 2014 uh, 14% alpha is big <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and so uh, what, what how do you define a regime sharp ratio so okay just as a background for this project this yeah. i think has been uh, going on this is with uh, my former phd student ling hang and i think one of my colleague alex yeah. and uh, i have to give my co-author i think ling hang a lot of credit again the reason why for a long time i was always thinking about um, the sector rotation strategies and how to actually improve them mm-hmm. again as you know like this a number of funds which actually implement sector rotation strategies yeah. uh, and uh, some of them do well some of them don't do as well and my view was if you can actually predict the next step of um, the business cycle in a way mm. it might be you might be able to get some alpha out of that because you are ahead of the game before even the sector rotation happens and you can see it happening that i think in bad times there might be more of utilities and more of defensive stocks in good time i think there might be more growth firms yeah. but yeah. partly it didn't work i think uh, when i tried it initially mm. it didn't work as well that's when my co-author ling hang my former phd student i think came out with this uh, sharp ratio mm-hmm. and i think which actually was i think uh, p- pretty good it worked out in a way because now we are not only looking at uh, in terms of the return but we are also adjusting for in a way the standard deviation of this one so that way i think we are able to actually get a more ref- this information in both these uh, movements mm-hmm. so basically one can get a better better uh, proxy of trying to predict the future there's actually two angles to this paper yeah. one of them is coming out with this measure of this historical business cycle sharp ratio mm. and other thing is what can you use to actually predict mm. the business cycle yeah that's where we go we, we go and construct this output gap measure so the output gap i think the idea is when the output gap is uh, positive then again the business the, it might be that business cycle i think uh, the economy might do well because there's more of slack in that i think in a way it's it, there's still more to be done in the future so, so combination the, i think is what got us okay so 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 what do you mean by the business cycle regime sharp ratio is that a sharp ratio in a specific window is that what you mean yeah typically we look at over the last 10 years we haven't been it's not a very short term thing yeah. we look because we want to cut down on the amount of churn and the amount of trading that would be done yeah. so we have looked at um, the past uh, decades i think we have that tried at different time periods but mostly over the last uh, 10 years and again it's more you can see that some of the industries that rank there i think are pretty like i think reasonable i think uh, in a way you would have utilities you would have some kind of beer and you would have other kind of industries which would do even uh, well in a consumer um, which consumers like would, would always buy this stuff right okay. i think versus consumer discretionary there might be more cycles of out of that yeah so 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 for my own understanding so there so there are two things you say here one is the sharp ratio based on uh, sort of the, the business cycle sharp ratio which would imply that um, you know you're going to compute this in a in a specific business cycle window and then you say that the strategy itself uh, the long uh, high rsr and the short low rsr that is conditional on whether the output gap is positive or negative so how you how you would decide uh, which ones to long and which ones to short depends on where you sit on that business cycle 
um, a point in in terms of time? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So what we do is for each we have a the sector rotation strategy. We normally we again we need a long time period because uh, the business cycles, as you know, one of the issues is uh, you can't really use a short windows yes. because the business cycle. I think we need long enough data. Yes. So yes. what we do is uh, we look at uh, at the beginning of each year uh, why. Like for example, if it's let's say in um, 1985 or 1995. Uh, hmm. The regime for that year, we based on the sign of the output gap in November of the previous year. So let's say we take 95, we are looking at what the sign of the output gap in 94 is. Hmm. And then I think then we sort the industries based on the Sharpe ratio from the past few years. Okay. So it goes back, we actually go back all the way to 1928 because we need a long enough time period. But we do a rolling basis also so that I think uh, it's not as much of an issue. Yeah. And so, so are you always long on high RSR and always short on low RSR? So typically, we long industries in the industries which yes, we do that. But yeah. uh, we the industries which are in that uh, highest decile change. Mm. So we typically go long on the industries in the highest decile yeah. and short industries in the lowest decile. Okay. Okay. So, so this is not okay. So it's it's sort of industry rotation, but it's more. Um, buying the winners and shorting the, the losers a little bit? Yes, there's definitely an industry component to it. And yeah. that's why I think we, we make sure that the standard industry momentum yeah. is not, I think this is not explained by that. We control for all that. Okay. And after that, we get uh, this alpha, I think, around uh, ranging from 8% to around 14%. But going back to your previous point, again, why such a high alpha? Yeah. And yeah. would it last in the future? I don't know. Again, <laughs> yeah. uh, the researchers, I think uh, there's some research, I think, done uh, by uh, like a faculty from other universities, which showed that uh, once the academic study has published, yeah. has been published, then some of the predictability goes uh, down. Right. Uh, one can take it as a couple of reasons. One, maybe like uh, this uh, information that comes out through this study. That's why I think other researchers, other industry, they start implementing that. Yeah. And if enough number of uh, investors trade on this strategy, the alpha should come down. Right. That's one. Or it might be that maybe there's something about um, this particular strategy and the particular time period it works, mm. but maybe it's not as robust out of sample. <laughs> right. Yeah. I know that, uh, you know, your students, uh, a lot of your students want to go to Wall Street and make a billion dollars tomorrow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but typically it doesn't, it's not that easy, right? Yeah, it's definitely not easy. And that's what I tell them. I think in a way, it's not simple. You can't sit at your uh, desk at a, at a kitchen table and program a machine learning algorithm and then uh, go and uh, make the alpha because uh, you are trading with the big boys. In a way, you not only need to have a very good model, but you also need to have access to data. Right. In uh, many a time, I think my students, they think of it as, and which I think uh, they're very smart students, but part of the learning is uh, it's not just enough having a very good model or a complicated model, right. whether it's a machine learning model or AI model to make alpha in the markets. Right. One has to combine with uh, some very good data. It yeah. might be alternate data or it might be some other proprietary data. Yeah. But again, as you know, if enough people trade on this data, Right. Again, uh, the information gets incorporated to the prices. You might not find as much of alpha going forward. Right. So sometimes a simpler model with a better data or uh, data which others don't have, which has predictive power, yeah. could get a better alpha. 
Right, right. Yeah, I always say that the financial markets is a great ego leveler. Yeah, in real markets, if economy is generally moving up, even incompetent managers uh, could look pretty good. Yeah, uh, but that is not possible in the long run in financial markets. Your incompetence will be shown <laughs> very quickly. Uh, you are very much jump... right. I tell the students that's why I think in a way, if I had known the magic ball, I think then I would have been uh, making a lot more money. But I think probably finance faculty are not the ones <laughs> should asking for investment advice because we take academic view, a long term view, right. and I think uh, into account. But uh, you are definitely <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, so I want to uh, go into a corporate finance paper. So it is entitled Pension Overhang and Corporate Investment, uh, in which you uh, look at an exogenous universal increase in discount rates mandated by the Moving Ahead for Progress Act, MAP 21. I don't know anything about this act, but uh, it looks like that basically reduced uh, sort of the pension liabilities that the companies are carrying in their balance sheets, and then you're looking at what that change uh, might have done to their investment posture. Well, so what exactly is MAP21? So this again, uh, this paper is with, again, many of my work, I think, uh, is uh, with uh, my PhD students. And yeah. I think this paper is with uh, Peter Simasek. I think, and again, I have to give him a lot of credit for this paper. And then another former student of mine, Emmanuel Alanis. Yeah. And Peter used to work at uh, PIMCO and I think, um, and also at Bank of America. And he had a lot of experience with um, the pensions. So he basically came to me, I think, with this uh, broad MAP21, and that's how we started this project. Mm -hmm. But MAP21 was passed in 2012, yeah. and this was actually set up as part of the transportation bill at that point of time. Mm -hmm. So the broad idea is by increasing, in a way, the discount rate, in a way, the liabilities would become smaller. So mm -hmm. what, uh, uh, like, at, I think the idea at that point of time was to reduce some of the tax uh, benefits mm -hmm. to firms out of this um, uh, in a pension contribution that they're making. So that's why I think it was uh, put as part of it. So by putting the discount rates, change the discount rates, there's going to be like uh, less of uh, tax deductible firm contributions. Yeah. So and the transportation bills, there's some, uh, it's, it's used as an offsetting revenue component. So that's how it came in. That's why it's a nice exogenous thing because it's not meant to be directly to influence the pensions per se, yeah. but it was meant as a more of a revenue offsetting bill. So that's okay. why I think, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so when you say the discount rate uh, reduction, so there is no change in the pension liabilities looking forward, but what they carry in the balance sheet as, as liabilities change because they're using a using a different discount rate is that yes okay. it's almost a, by 200 basis points so it was increased by like uh, this uh, particular uh, uh, point discount rate was increased by almost 200 basis points okay so what we wanted to do was uh, take that and i think uh, as the shock in again in a corporate finance setting many a time we are worried about uh, the exogenity we are worried about identification yeah. is there something i think when we identify some result is it because of um, uh, the channel that we have in mind or is it because something else happening is some omitted variable which uh, we are not controlling for our regressions from the, in the when you talked about the analyst paper the extreme tone you mentioned what else we control for but there's only like uh, a set number of things that we can control for hmm. but there still might be something which is uh, omitted which we are not controlling for which might be driving the results 
or there might be something else happening at the same time mm. uh, which might be contributing to the result so we are try to be as careful as we can and we can't 100% be certain that's how i think of it yeah. we try to do number of things to give more confidence that what we attribute to the channel is yeah. what is driving the result but we can never ever 100% completely rule out that's how i see it so um so the, the, this is an accounting change there is no cash flow effect right yeah that's what we find i think in a way the cash flow effect is not that strong but we find it's more of the accounting effect yeah. and based on that i think we can compute a measure in a way we compute what we call a pension overhang measure yeah and using that we can look at whether what happens to the firm's investment mm. and firm's other corporate policies okay so you know um very simplistically the firm feels like it has more resources to invest because but but there is no real cash flow effect it's a big a bit like people going out and buying houses when the stock market goes up even though it's all tied up in in stocks or options uh but you find that after the change the accounting change firms have in, uh, increased their investment right Yes, I think firms have increased by almost depends on the size of the firm, depends on where they're doing. But we find a one standard deviation change in our debt overhang correction measure, yeah. the six point six percent change in investment. So if the firms have a above median of measure based on this dimension after MAP twenty one, the investment is almost thirteen percent. And there is a difference. Um, you also looked at uh, sort of the the. um c level xx pay if it is more tied to performance uh there is a, there is a different set as opposed to more conventional uh um pay schemes right yes i think uh, we can look at i think uh, based on the co compensation yeah. uh, we can basically look at that and i think there's definitely a relationship based on that and it makes sense it's not again there's nothing wrong with that yeah. it basically because from a stockholder point of view like you want firms to make positive npv investments yeah. and that's part of the reason why you give the incentives that you give to the managers okay so more generally sudhir would you say i i i didn't read the whole paper i'm just looking at the abstract would you say this idea i mean this is a lot of firms are suffering from it right um they they have um pension plans that have very high liabilities in them and and that is uh, kind of filtering into their investment posture so would you say uh, any change in that arena uh, would ultimately result in a higher level of investments uh, by firms yes i think uh, as again not only like uh, the pensions i think are a important uh, part i think uh, for uh, the company liabilities in a way because ultimately it's a debt whether i think uh, whether directly recognized or not it's uh, one type of debt so anything that changes that obligation again we can think of gm i think uh, in 2008 or i think other auto companies or some of the companies or legacy pension plans yeah. which are um, pretty like large in terms of their liabilities so anything that changes the value or have the potential to change that would have some impact on the investment policy of the firm mm. so that's bottom line that's what we're finding and this is something which i think not only for um, uh, co- companies but also i think for uh, municipalities or i think uh, for uh, local governments right. i think of it as a big issue going forward because this um, again uh, looking at the demographics look, looking at uh, the state of um, uh, local government finances i think uh, that can be a big issue going forward hmm. 
so so I, I haven't really you know thought about it but uh, from a stimulus perspective from you know economic stimulus perspective there could be some policy possibilities here uh, if you know if there is a way to uh, way to reduce the you're almost reducing <laughs> i think the perception of liability because there's no cash flow change it's almost how the firm internalizes its liabilities that's what's being changed right right yeah so so, so i wonder if there's you know some kind of government policies that could be conceived probably i think uh, the more fundamental issue i think is in terms of uh, how companies uh, have what kind of pensions they give what kind of pension liabilities they have the structure of it can they actually uh, bear those liabilities are they being properly accounted for either in the company's balance sheet and the local government's balance sheet yeah. and if not i think uh, then it is going to definitely have an impact on their future investment policies okay. and uh, if uh, the in terms of the government policies uh, that would be like uh, yeah i think uh, i don't have uh, anything in mind where i think uh, i can say it's a the government should do this one yeah. but definitely i think anything that changes uh, the liability or the value of the liability is going to have an impact Right. And especially for if the firms are constrained, because uh, if the firm, the broad idea is sometimes uh, from the cash flow effect, sometimes the firm might have uh, to contribute to the pension or they're thinking about uh, uh, investing. Mm. But now I think if the pension before it was underfunded and now because of uh, this law change, this no longer underfunded, yes. then they don't need to contribute to uh, the pension plan so that they might, might be able to invest. Right, right. Yeah, so I want to jump into another completely different area. So impact of e-commerce on employees at brick and mortar retailers, uh, in which you say using an employer-employee payroll data set for approximately 2.6 million retail workers, you analyze the impact of uh, staggered rollout of major e-commerce retailers' fulfillment centers on the income and employment of workers at geographically proximate brick and mortar retail stores. Um, so, so my, from my own understanding, so the the, the fulfillment center, um, at least uh, I would have imagined the fulfillment center is you know sort of robotics driven automated fulfillment process uh, that you know that uh, that's creating products that's going all all around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, the the proximity of the fulfillment center having an impact on. Uh, income and employment. Uh, I couldn't quite uh, quite understand that. Could you could you go into that a bit bit more? Sure. Uh, and this one, I think, is a broad theme. I think which uh, is has been playing in my mind for some time. Yeah. Uh, again, before we talked about artificial intelligence, machine learning. I think, uh, and again, this and the nature of jobs are changing in the U.S. and also elsewhere. Mm. Uh, technology has developed so much, and I think it's changing. I think by the minute, if we think about. Uh, uh, on any dimension, I think, in terms of what was possible five, ten years back in terms of um, whether machine learning models, deep learning models, natural natural language processing, NLP, I think uh, now um, IoT, I think there's so many things changing. Mm-hmm. So the nature of work is changing. Yeah. The broad theme I had in mind was wanted to see this whenever it changes, 
the nature of work changes. Yeah. It's not that the skills that the workers have, again, it might be blue collar worker, white collar worker. Again, as we see in the recent COVID-19 mm-hmm. crisis, again, we are going to see this kind of thing going forward. But going back to this paper, uh, it's going to change and it's not that they can adapt to it very quickly. Some mm-hmm. people, some jobs, they might be able to change, ad- adopt and then go and find a different job. But some some people might not be able to do that for for a variety of reasons. Yeah. So what we wanted to do was take this fulfillment center, the shock to if you look at retail sector, that's one of the largest employers em, uh, employers in the U.S. Yeah. And so what we wanted to do was over the last ten years before the COVID, mm-hmm. one of the biggest shocks in the retail space is uh, again entry of e-commerce. Yeah. The major the e-commerce firms coming in, starting from Amazon to others. Right. So what we wanted to see was how did it impact the workers? Mm. And again, is there an impact and who's left behind in a way, mm. the winners and losers? Yeah. So what we find is once we a fulfillment center is set up in a place, mm. we look at within 25 miles to 50 miles to 100 miles of that area. Yeah. We look at the traditional brick and mortar store employees. Mm. That is, let's say a fulfillment set, uh, center is set up in Atlanta. Yeah. We look at within 50 to 100 miles of this area all the other traditional retail uh, stores. Mm. So, and the workers of those stores. Right. Since we have the payroll data and we know the number of hours they work. Mm. We can quantify in a way because this happened uh, in a staggered fashion across the US. Yeah. So we can look at before and after and compare them to similar counties where there's no fulfillment center. So, so, um, you know, a large uh, e-commerce company coming into Atlanta and putting a fulfillment center, let's say in Atlanta, as a thought experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have imagined that fulfillment center uh, is essentially creating, you know, services and products that's going to be distributed all around the country, right? So why would that have an immediate impact on the retail stores in close proximity to the fulfillment fulfillment center. It's, it's a good question. I think um, so. We struggled with that. I think, yeah. and uh, our uh, thought process is when a fulfillment center comes to Atlanta, in a way, the the, the, the shipments yeah. it's easier for them to actually ship quickly. The, are there oh. they have more number of things they can ship on the same day mm. or within two days? Okay. And what the fulfillment center, what they might be able to do is they might be do some kind of predictive shipping where they know that this particular uh, location, there might be a demand for certain products. So they might preemptively ship them okay. to that location. And again, this is not just for the company per se, but also third party retailers, mm. which that means somebody, some firm in California yeah. might be able to reach out to a customer in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. through this major e-commerce firm, which I can't name, yeah. and uh, the fulfillment center. Right. So th- that's why the shipping s- speed uh, goes up. That mm-hmm. means more people, more consumers might be interested in purchasing yeah. them. Right now, the trade-off for them is I might be able to order online. It might take me three days or one week. Mm-hmm. Or I might be able to go to drive to my local store and I might actually get it in one hour. But now the trade-off becomes... If I order it before a certain time, I might get it by tomorrow. Mm. So yes. it's going to be, and what we, this, we actually show that. What we have is we are actually have data on the sales and employment of a large number of uh, stores. Mm. So in the surrounding areas, around 3.2 million stores. And then we actually show that the sales of the surrounding retail stores goes down. Mm. 
that's, and that's because so, of that yeah. the number of workers the number of hours they work yeah, part time yeah. workers now that goes that that goes down yeah that's so interesting today so you know as you know we don't have to name any names here there was a big fight in new york mm-hmm. uh recently and uh you know just like i was thinking initially uh why would a fulfillment center destroy local employment uh, mm-hmm. was counterintuitive but what you what you're finding is that uh because it changes the delivery dynamics in that mm-hmm. corridor yeah. it it uh, it competes away any profits that might have existed in small stores around that fulfillment center Uh, that's right and i think again uh, don't take i'm not saying it's only negative again yeah. the way like we think of it is this trade offs so the fulfillment center by itself creates some jobs so it's not a negative but the number of jobs i think which are lost in the retail sector are like more than the number of jobs created by the fulfillment center the warehouses and the transportation sector in a way like delivery and others Right. so that's what we find but also who does it impact so in the sense there might be like a, a cashier for example the way to think about is uh, a cashier at a like a traditional brick and mortar store but yeah, at a yeah. warehouse or or a fulfillment center you don't need a cashier hmm. that is the nature of jobs and who gets left behind changes right so some people who are left behind in the traditional brick and mortar store they might be able to go to college or they might be retool and go and find a different job right but right. certain skills i think are not easily transferable or people might not be able to easily shift mm-hmm. that's when i think it's going to be a problem we just wanted to highlight the trade offs yeah, not yeah. necessarily say e-commerce is bad i think it's irrevocable i think it's on one way street i don't think it's going <laughs> to change yeah. uh, all we want to say is uh, if there's going to be any policy responses or if you want to highlight the trade offs who might be winning who might be losing in a way not losing it might be not matter the right word but in a way who are suffer more so there might be more targeted responses for that because yeah, we think yeah. of it as a simple big trend that's going to happen and the right the current covid situation again as you know is going to like make it um, it's a mood i think the e-commerce into a different phase right right yeah i mean it makes the policy question really difficult right so one could argue you know you have a market which is sort of operating inefficiently with small stores uh and you know their fulfillment capacity in terms of time uh as well as ultimate cost to consumers are probably higher than the alternative so consumer welfare actually goes up when the fulfillment center enters that market but unfortunately it's going to bring with it uh loss of jobs and uh, like you say they're going to be winners and losers yes. the consumers uh in aggregate are winners in the market yes. because they get their product faster cheaper possibly yes. uh but then it's going to impact negatively the workers that exist there yeah you are spot on i think uh, in a way like uh, consumers are definitely like benefit a lot and we can't quantify we don't quantify in this paper and we are very upfront about this yeah. there's a number of benefits of e-commerce there's a number of benefits of this fulfillment centers but all we want to point to consumers benefit from it from it from a number of dimensions maybe cheaper prices maybe more choice and speedier delivery less driving hmm. but we can't quantify that but all we want to say is the flip side of it where the local small store 
which used to like sell now is not only competing with uh, the, uh, the big e-commerce firm but also all the other stores which might actually sell through this right yeah. now so so so, so, so there, I, I don't know if you have laws around it so could you say if you take that local market mm -hmm. and a fulfillment center coming in it is basically extracting monopoly rents in that market so it is it is extracting uh profits that you know could you actually actually regulate in such a way that to say uh it is good because consumer welfare is going up, but the the, the profits extracted by the re the e-commerce retailer uh, has to be expended in that market in some way to to counteract the, the loss of loss of jobs. That's one possibility. I think I'm always a bit careful about giving policy <laughs> recommendations. I think because I think uh, the, my my role, I think as an academic, I think is to shed light on something. Yeah. So that I think there might be like uh, just to show the trade-offs. So policymakers can consider everything because whenever <laughs> something is said as a policy, there can always be a flip side to that. Uh, yes. But this that's definitely one point because there's uh, maybe some kind of um, funding, some educational initiatives uh, in that particular uh, area yeah. uh, might be one. I think, uh, yeah, so, but e-commerce, I think, is not going to change. It just, what we want to share is uh, there's going to be a large number, I think, of uh, workers mm -hmm. who are going to be in trouble because of this. So how do we take care of them? How do we make them ready for the jobs which needed? Yeah, so yeah. we just want to point out this kind of trade-off here. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and it's really, like you say, it's skills upgrade that, that, that would be needed. Uh, and so, I mean, like you say, this this is you can't pull away from it. Um, th this yeah. is a trend that is uh, that has happened. That's going to continue to happen. The HR requirements in these processes are going to continue to decline with robotics and artificial intelligence. And so, broadly, the issue is uh, education and skills upgrade, uh, and you know things like. Um, uh, you know, universal basic income and things like that. So there are a lot of lot of issues around this that policymakers need to think about. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting issues. And I think I'll mention a couple of other things that I'm doing, I think maybe because yeah. the scheme I think is bigger in my mind is uh, one is actually like, I, we don't necessarily think of it as uh, increasing the minimum wage, I think as an answer for this one. In another research, because what we, another paper, what we look at is uh, the minimum wage changes, minimum wage and in various um, um, states, I think based on the federal minimum wage uh, uh, change. So some of the states, as you know, in the U.S. are bound by the federal minimum wage and some are not. So yeah. then some of the states have a higher one. So what happens when the federal minimum wage changes is the states where which are bound by the federal minimum wage. Now, suddenly there's a shock for them in the sense that their minimum wage goes up. So what we wanted to see was, does this one size fits all serve like um, is it a good thing yeah. in the sense that uh, now what you're having is, for example, if you think about a small business, which is, let's say, in uh, San Francisco, mm -hmm. the minimum wage goes up. Maybe it's OK in San Francisco. People might be willing to pay five dollars or ten dollars for a latte mm -hmm. and uh, maybe they can pass on some of the cost to the consumers. Yeah. And so the workers get a higher income. And the consumers are willing to pay for it. So the small business, even if it takes some small cut in its profitability, might be okay. Hmm. But what about like, let's say like um, another firm, hmm. a small business, maybe somewhere in the middle of Georgia, yeah. 
which is in an area where it can't pass on the cost to the consumer so then basically like uh, the only way it can absorb this increased minimum wage cost yeah. either it actually increases its automation right or fires employees or reduces it mm. because if it, it can pass on to the customers then it's okay but if it can't pass on right. then it has to take um, uh, some action right. so for example uh, it might be that i think um, if you increase the minimum wage a lot maybe like a car wash they might actually end up um, employing more of robotic car wash rather than uh, employing more people right so right kind of trade off we wanted to look at again not necessarily saying minimum wage is good or bad yeah uh, we don't have a we, we we don't have anything to say on that because it's a extremely large well researched area but yeah. all we want to say is whether a one size fits all minimum wage across the country hmm. like let's say going to 15 dollars or i think uh, as as people have been talking about yeah we wanted to show that some areas where the small businesses can't pass on the cost mm. they'll be worse off i see yeah so yeah that's very interesting uh, and so you would you would then say uh, that the the job losses that some argue associated with uh, increase in minimum wages uh, is going to be differentially found uh, in certain markets and not others uh, so so from a policy perspective Uh, there are certain places you could do that but certain others you're going to have a negative effect on employment as as some economists predict that's right i think that's why i think what we think it might be good is to cater this to the local market one way you can think about it is completely if you think out purely market based view yeah. then one can think of like maybe the small businesses and the labor they can set the wages themselves there's no need for minimum wage hmm. but that assumes that again the labor has the power and i think this the this that market is perfectly competitive it might not be right. so there might be intermediate thing where in stuff setting at the federal level maybe there's something where each state or each county or each uh, at a local level as appropriate the minimum wages are i think at based on the local conditions right right so then i think basically some of these issues might go away that's all we want to point out in that but yeah. let's enough not necessarily to say minimum wage is good or bad we don't have anything to say on that yeah that's very interesting because almost all the literature uh, i think i mean i haven't really researched this obviously is is about this binary question is raising mm-hmm. minimum wage is good or bad <laughs> right <laughs> yeah and uh, and what you're suggesting is that question has to be uh, answered based on the markets at the very least it has to be answered based on the states at the very very least uh, assuming states have you know some uh, common characteristics because i've seen some studies in the 90s where you know people just go across the border uh, from mm-hmm. one state a to state b and say yeah this 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 doesn't work and hence <laughs> i argue that you know <laughs> you shouldn't increase minimum wages Right. Uh, and so you can pick your state where it works and where it doesn't work. <laughs> that's right. that's what it looks like, yeah. Yeah, that's true. I think many of my research I think that's why I think I try to just quantify some of these trade-offs and then I think just to shed light on them I think uh, so that I think it's interesting. And another one which is a bit related I think uh, which you might be interested is in terms of uh, you mentioned about the New York the recent subsidies, corporate subsidies. Yeah. In the US there's around 38 billion dollars of corporate subsidies given in the last 15 years. at 13 years that local municipalities local counties local governments they give the subsidies to attract uh, companies sometimes to retain the companies 
because they want to it's a jobs i think in a way like i think when a new company comes in to town they bring jobs yeah. and which is, i think is a very good thing so local economic development corporations do that but what we started thinking was uh, again to again quantify some of these trade offs mm-hmm. in some cases maybe it's a good thing if you bring in it's a positive uh, investment by the county that it, it goes and gets this form which might get in a huge number of jobs which might actually improve the county or the particular state's economy mm-hmm. and there might be some uh, ancillary benefits ancillary industries might come in there might be some spillover effects there might be jobs multiplier uh, one job in manufacturing might create two jobs in restaurants and some other related uh, like way based on the spending yeah. yeah but at the same time maybe like some cases it might not be true if the counties um, might war bit because there's a lot of competition as you know recently for example with amazon i think around 250 different uh, local governments bid for that mm-hmm. so what's the right thing so what we wanted to quantify was uh, from a finance angle look at that and the way we could but many a time it's a tough question to actually see what the real benefit net benefit is because if you think about foxconn and wisconsin or some other cases this has spread over a long period of time Mm-hmm. it's not a one year thing to look at okay how many jobs are created in the next one year right, the, right. the investment plans are faced or 5 years 10 years and the subsidies are faced over a period of time and the jobs also come in and it's difficult to quantify how many jobs came in what level of jobs what's the salary level etc so what we take is a different level we look at the state of the local municipalities mm-hmm. we look at the municipal bonds issued by these counties local governments and we look at what happened to the yield spreads of this existing municipal debt yeah yeah that is uh, if the investors think this is a positive thing mm-hmm. there's going to be more growth there's going to be more jobs coming in it's good then we should find a positive effect in a way the yield should go down right whereas if the investors think that this is actually going to cause more cost yeah. then the benefits that come to the county then they might actually vote their feet in a way and the yield spread should go up it should become more costly for the local municipality to uh, rise that that's exactly what we find you know that's, uh, that's yeah that, that's a very easily measurable thing it's very quantitative it's very uh, very objective so that yeah. makes a lot of sense the other thing that you're showcasing here i think uh, sudhir is that uh, a job is not a commodity uh in the sense that we cannot say a, a firm entering a, a a location is going to bring 100 jobs the more important question mm-hmm. is what what type of jobs uh and maybe maybe the compensation is a proxy for the skill set i don't know uh but the the quantitative measure of how many jobs are being brought into a location is increasingly irrelevant right yeah it's not just the number of jobs but also how many spillover jobs it might be able to create yeah. in other industries that's one thing which uh, like again uh, in, to some extent i think they try to take into account when the the local economic development corporations but still i think it's not a perfect measurement yeah. so that's part of the issue and uh, also in terms of what type of jobs as you mentioned if this uh, like if you have a r&d facility and because of this one other r&d facilities come around it mm. this area becomes more innovative right. then it might be good 
Right. Or if it's just like a, for example, a data center, sometimes data center is good, mm-hmm. but data center is like if you have like uh, robots manning most of the time and you hire five employees <laughs> and it's not creating any other ancillary things, right? then the value of that might be less. So it's a more uh, nuanced thing where one has to take into account what industry, what type of uh, facility, what type of jobs are being created mm-hmm. and how much net benefit there might be. So what we find is if the if the county and also one interesting thing, which is also there is many a time companies bid for um, like it's not that account maybe big cities bid for multiple facilities multiple industries yeah. but sometimes some of these counties are small mm. so the bargaining power when they are looking at big firms trillion dollar companies is a bit asymmetric yeah it's david and goliath kind of thing where you have like uh, this big uh, companies which can uh, use the number of consultants and who know they have a very good idea of what the point which they can ask for in a way yeah. because they have very good data and they have very good analytics and they can actually like uh, have a very good sense of the market right. and negotiating with certain counties and which might not have as much of uh, they they can't afford as much of uh, expertise in a way yeah yeah so so what we find is when the counties have weaker bargaining power mm. in a way they give out more subsidy relative to what they're getting in in a way that's where the borrowing costs go up more mm. Mm. and so so that should show up in the yield spread as well right uh, yes yeah. and so sort of uh, you know knowing that the entrant uh, would presumably take advantage of it <laughs> right yeah. uh, uh, maybe the entrant wants to negotiate with a weaker uh, weaker negotiator uh, i wonder if there is any evidence for that i think many a time for the counties i think what we actually look at is we look at uh, the county which is won the deal yeah. versus yeah. the competing county which is almost close mm-hmm. and then we look at the winning county and then what happens on that because we need a counterfactual okay. again the issue is, is the county's municipal uh, debt the price the yields went up because of this deal or maybe it's in a trajectory because in a bad trajectory that's why the yield spread would have gone up irrespective mm-hmm. to rule out we look at the top two competitors in a way yeah. and then we look at the one the second best and then we look at the difference between them uh but yeah there might be like uh in terms of um, many large companies they would be at any point of time they would have a division they would have number of uh, employees who are just focused on finding out the right sites right <laughs> facility right right <laughs> so their expertise is uh, is a bit definitely lopsided yes yes yeah i want to touch on one more paper uh, sudhir before we close um uh, sure. uh, revealed heuristics evidence from investment consultant search behavior uh you say pro- uh, using proprietary data from a major fund data provider you analyze the screening activity of investment consultants who advise institutional uh, investors with trillions of dollars in assets and you find that this ics this investment consultants frequently shortlist funds using threshold screens uh, clustered at around base 5 or base 10 numbers uh, mm-hmm. like 500 uh, million in uh, assets under management um you want to talk a bit about this this seems uh, again intuitive but <laughs> it, it just seems so inefficient uh yes i think uh, this is again um, it's this a long line of literature in a way looking at uh, um, what kind of heuristics um, investors or even consumers use yeah. whenever we go to stores many a time we see the prices at dollar uh, 99 2.99 cents mm-hmm. in a way it's the left digit effect 
in terms of um, some people perceive and many people might perceive a dollar 99 to be a bit closer to a dollar than it's to two dollars yeah so that, that that's uh, the case same kind of thing there might be this kind of heuristics i think which uh, where the consumers or uh, investors might use mm-hmm. and there's some research on that what we want to look at is uh, this investment consultants who are again um, uh, major uh, agents in this market which many of the institutions mm-hmm. like pension funds or other asset managers i think when they want to uh, like uh, invest in particular uh, funds they might uh, do an rfp request for proposal and then they might actually go through this investment consultants yeah. we mm-hmm. wanted to see whether they also use this kind of heuristics mm-hmm. again it's not necessarily a bad thing what the way we think of it as is a consider and choose kind of strategy mm-hmm. because the universe of uh, funds available is very large right so what they might do is you don't want to look at 3000 if the effort is costly mm-hmm. you might not want to download all 3000 firms mm-hmm. and then do due diligence on all 3000 of them right you might use some screens yeah and um, to actually cut down that list and based on that you can actually like uh, maybe do more due diligence right. on those subset so we have the data on the screens that they use mm. and interestingly what we find is these investment consultants who are um, again sophisticated players they also use thresholds at 500 million dollars of assets under management yeah. or a billion dollars in assets under management mm. so those round numbers that we see right and more interestingly and i think uh, in line with this we find that um, once they're shortlisted that is think of two funds which are maybe one is at uh, 501 million dollars mm-hmm. and another one is at 499 million dollars yeah. yeah. they are the same on all dimensions except one is above the threshold mm-hmm. so it will make into the shortlist of the investors or, or the investment consultants yeah. the other one doesn't make it it's, and uh, what it's, uh... Yeah, it also acts as sort of an entry barrier for small firms, right? So, you know, this is sort of perpetuating an idea that uh, bigger funds are better, uh, you know, sort of. So if, if, one, if you don't get to that threshold, your chance of getting to that threshold is lower. <laughs> it works yeah. against you, right? Yeah, that's true. I think that's exactly like in a way what we find is the one which is above the threshold, yeah. they actually have higher, greater, higher fund flows into them. Mm. Whereas compared to the one which is uh, like below the threshold, so the one which is larger just made it above past the threshold now attracts more funds. Right. Right. Till again, I think it goes to the next threshold in a way. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely some value to that. So that's why I think funds would want to. And again, this is not a phenomena only in something. Again, we know from um, any of the schools, right? The US News top twenty, top thirty <laughs> makes a difference. <laughs> what comes on the first page in the top ten lists? that's why they say pro- proliferation of those kind of lists yes because any time we say top 10 <laughs> there's a value to that <laughs> so it perpetuates uh, it perpetuates the the same things uh, into the future you know a bit like machine learning so if you if you just look at history you're going to perpetuate history you know this is one of the issues that as you know artificial intelligence is going to have as well um but, uh, yeah, that's uh, yeah, very important because I think if the model is not trained on the data, it never has seen that. Right. In a way, like uh, it, it might not be it only it, it's the one on which it's trained on. It might be able to give predictions close to that. But it's a uh, interesting thing. And how can it give predictions? That how might you may do the model mm-hmm. predictions when it hasn't seen something? 
So that's where I think uh, all the issues about uh, what data it's trained on, if it will actually have any biases in the data that's going to show up in the predictions. There's a very active research, I think, going on in fairness, ethics, and uh, this type of research in machine learning. Yeah. And um, yeah. the models are getting better, but they're always models. Right. <laughs> yeah, so this has been great, Sudhir. Uh, thanks so much for spending time with me. And uh, good luck with all your research. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed talking to you. And I think, uh, again, uh, I look forward, to, look forward to conversing with you again in the future. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. Have a good day. You too.